Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence in us. We welcome your power among us. We welcome you as you've welcomed us. So we pray that you would just open up our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls, our spirits to you. Would you come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? Would you change us, transform us, give us a fresh insight or a word or whatever? We're open to whatever, however you want to speak to us today through this teaching. And so we just pray that you would help form us into a people who, like you, have a priority in our hearts for your presence to be experienced to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each fall, we take a few weeks to work through our vision series. So if you're new, welcome. Uh, We believe that the church is a family, a household of faith, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. And um, and so we want to be clear about what it looks like to be a part of this house. And so this is our opportunity each each year to sort of remind us because we're prone to forget. And then for those who are new, hopefully to invite commitment, or at least as you're exploring, you know what it is you're getting yourself into. Uh, I know for some of us, it's been a while since we've been to church, and we have really low trust in the church, and so we want to be super clear about what what we are and who we are and what we're not. And so um, our hope is that in hearing this, that you would hear an invitation from Jesus, not from me, not from our church, but an invitation from Jesus to practice his way, to become a disciple and to grow as a disciple. That's really the heart of our church's vision is, is just discipleship, to learn to be with Jesus become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And and the way that we say that here at SOMA really is sort of three things that we've woven together, uh, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about what it means to practice the way of Jesus, why that's important, why, and what it looks like for us to be formed into a people of love. There in Matthew 22, love God with your whole person, love your neighbors yourself. Last week, we talked about doing that together, sort of resisting the individualism uh, of our cultural moment and seeking to live as a, what Jesus would call a strong group community or a family or a household. And then this week, we're gonna talk about the last part of that statement, uh, mission for the life of the world. What does it look like to be a people who live for the life of the world? And so let's talk together about mission in the way of Jesus. And one of the more fascinating stories in Jesus's life and ministry, the cleansing of the temple. Now, if you can't already pick up on by reading this, the emotional state of Jesus in this passage. He is hot and bothered and angry uh, as he enters the temple. And it's important, just like in a relationship, um, I, I know there's times where like I come to my house uh, and, and maybe my wife's a little bit irritated about something. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I want to understand, I need to understand what is, what's the energy driving that before I just jump in and speak. When I was younger, I used to say things and not, not from a place of knowledge. And I'd be like, oh, why are you so angry? Or why are you so upset about this? And it's like, let me tell you about how many goldfish were thrown in my face today. Or let me tell you about what it was like in my day. And, and so understanding why somebody is upset or one of your children's upset or whatever helps you to then figure out how to respond to that. And so in the same way, we need to understand what's driving Jesus's frustration here. And in order to do that, we need to understand the background and the history of the temple. And so what I wanna do is just take a few minutes and I wanna tell the broader story of the temple, which is really the story of the Bible in three chapters. Because if you don't understand that, you are gonna misdiagnose and misapply what Jesus is doing here in the temple and what he's trying to say to us in this moment. So three chapters, the story of the temple, the garden, Israel, and then Jesus. Okay, so scene one in this story of the temple starts in the garden. Did you know that the first 
temple in the Bible is not Solomon's temple. It actually shows up in Genesis chapter one at the beginning, the first pages of the story of creation. All the language in Genesis chapter one, and I don't have time to do a deep dive into this, but all the language in Genesis one to two is telling us that God is architecting the entire cosmos, all of creation as the place where a temple is essentially a place where heaven and earth overlap. And in Genesis one and two, we see heaven and earth overlapping in the cosmos with the Garden of Eden as the sort of holy of holies where God's presence would dwell and be experienced in unhindered communion by our first image-bearing parents, the first humans, Adam and Eve. So the garden is this sort of garden temple where the presence of God is, is there. It's a place of life, abundant life, shalom, right? Life with God. This is the life that we all long for, life with God, life within ourselves. There's wholeness and integration, life within, with each other, and even life between us and the natural world. This is Shalom, and Adam and Eve are invited in this sort of garden temple complex to be gardeners and priests, to cultivate the development of the garden and spread the garden until the whole of creation was filled with God's glorious presence. That's basically Genesis 1 to 2. Now, in Genesis 3, the reality of this designed communion or union with God is broken. They're seduced away from that life by the anti-life serpent who comes to kill and steal and destroy, and they the first humans try to find life apart from God. This is the first attempt in human history to pursue human progress apart from the presence of God. That's another way to talk about sin. It's the attempt to find human progress apart from the presence of God. And they fail in their roles as priests and they are literally cast out to live the rest of their lives east of Eden under the curse of evil and sin. They are now kings and queens without a kingdom and without a temple. Scene two Israel, in his extravagant mercy, God does not abandon his plan to fill the earth with his presence and to seek communion with human beings. He promised to bring redemption from the slavery of sin. And he begins this project of deliverance in the Exodus story, right? Remember after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God delivers the people from the bondage of Pharaoh. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He adopts Israel into his covenant family. And, and what does he call them? A holy nation of priests. It's a recommissioning of Genesis chapters one and two. He commissions them as priests who would once again enjoy communion with him and spread his presence out to the nations. And there's a long story here that we don't have time to get into about how Moses goes up on the mountain into the presence of God for 40 days. He receives the pattern for God's new home that would open up or reopen a way for his people to come into his presence. He builds this tabernacle and the end of the book of Exodus is all about these really detailed construction regulations for the builders and all these restrictions for the priests. Because you know, you don't just casually walk into the presence of God without dying, right? So imagine like having a nuclear power plant in your backyard and you try to go in there without the appropriate equipment, right? You, you die. And that's, God is like, you know, infinite uh, nuclear power, right? And so so he builds this tabernacle and he also builds this tent of meeting right on the edge of the camp that functioned as this 24 seven house of prayer where Moses speaks face to face with God and the people are seeking God's presence personally without any restrictions. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition of those two places of worship. Now fast forward to the next scene in David in 2 Samuel 6, David is anointed as the king of Israel. And again, a really long story that I'm sort of condensing down David's riding in on his coronation after seven years, Saul's son, 
essentially by military fiat, refuses to leave Jerusalem after Saul dies. So David waits seven years, lives out in the countryside, and eventually Ishbosheth, who's Saul's son, is assassinated. And now David rides into town as the hero, right, to get his revenge. This is the blockbuster scene in every great movie, right? The hero rides into town to vanquish his predecessor. But David's triumphal entry, and we'll put that in quotes because that's what it is, is not what you'd script up for this blockbuster movie, for a blockbuster movie scene. David rides into Jerusalem on his lips, the psalm that he just wrote, Psalm 24, who is this king of glory, lift up the gates, right? Like he's talking about the presence of God coming back into the city of Jerusalem after a long absence. He's wearing the the garments of a priest. He's dancing because when you're in the presence of God, you can't help but dance. We could learn something from that church, right? Like he's dancing to the point where his wife's like, you are crazy. And he's like, yes, I'll be undignified and crazy in God's presence. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant. This is the crazy thing. He rides past the palace, right in the center of town. And he sets up with the Ark of the the Covenant a prayer tent patterned after Moses' prayer tent, a shelter for the presence of God. As one uh, theologian says, the presence of God was David's political strategy. He rides into town and he rolls out his big plan. And what is his big plan for the future of Israel? the presence of God in the middle of the city. And if you read 1 Chronicles 25, he hires 292 worship leaders, prophets, and elders to lead 24-7 worship and prayer right in the middle of Jerusalem. This is a statement of value and is, and is a plan for how the kingdom of God will grow, not through military might and strength and technology and power, but by the presence of God. And so David is prioritizing the presence of God and the life of God by putting prayer and worship and formation back at the center of God's people. Now, to make, again, a really long story short, the rest of the story, maybe you know it, maybe you don't, David wanted to build a temple, like a permanent dwelling place after the pattern of Moses' tabernacle that would house the presence of God. But because he was a soldier who had shed blood, God wouldn't allow him to. That project would fall to his son Solomon, who built the great temple Uh, called Solomon's Temple. After construction is completed and the temple is dedicated, God's presence falls and it fills the temple in the form of a thick cloud, the glory of God living and dwelling among his people permanently. But once again, that old pattern from Genesis and that old pattern of Saul repeats itself over and over and over again. And if you just want like the rest of the Old Testament, it's this pattern, just like Adam and Eve, just like Saul, the next scenes in Israel's story are marked by the human pursuit of progress without the presence of God. A series of kings and judges and priests and religious leaders conspire over and over and over again to commit tragic acts of idolatry and injustice. They put their trust not in the presence of God, but in military power, in technology, in political alliances. Good thing we're not like that anymore. Uh, To protect their power while allowing temple worship. I mean, again, this is all going on over here, but adjacent, temple worship is still happening. But temple worship devolves from what it was in David's day into a performative spectacle with a veneer of spiritual practice that really becomes a cover for these people who hold power to pursue their own comfort, their own greed, their own selfish ambition. And all of that culminates in Ezekiel chapter 10. The cloud lifts from the temple. God's presence leaves the center of God's people. God's like, hey guys, guess what? You can have all the prosperity of the temple. 
You can have the successful programs and the numbers and the fog machines and the hype. You can have the beautiful building, but I'm out. The presence of God leaves his people and he, in this moment, sends them into exile, which is both a moment of judgment on their idolatry and their injustice, but it's also a moment of grace. It's a promise. God promises them not about the building, but the promise is about a person. He promises them a person, a new Messiah, a new David, a king like David, but who would succeed where David failed and who would permanently reopen a way to God's presence. And that's where the Old Testament ends. And if you were a Jew reading the Old Testament, it would have ended in 2 Chronicles, right? With that throbbing ache of expectation and longing that goes unfulfilled, ultimately. And it's with that memory in their hearts and that hope filling their imagination that the writers of the New Testament introduce us to scene three in the life of Jesus in the tabernacle. The first page of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, an account of the genealogy which can be translated new genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew wants us to see that this, this is the new David that was promised in the Old Testament. Another writer, John, says it like this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Are you picking up on what they're laying down? The Greek word for dwell here is the word skeno'o, or tabernacle. Jesus literally is God tabernacling among us. Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth meet. He is the new tabernacle, the new temple, the locus of God's presence where God's glory no longer is in a cloud. It's contained in the very body of Jesus Christ himself. And that's why John says, in him was life, which is just a callback to Genesis chapter one. That life, that flourishing that we ache for is here in Jesus and that's why Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and life to the full. Here it is. Now it's being experienced in a particular body, in a particular place, in a particular time. That's the scandal of particularity that we see in the life of Jesus. The presence of God is now in a person. Now, with all of that as sort of the background, and maybe that's not interesting to you, but I find it fascinating to see the parallels because when we come back to this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, and we come back to Passover week, remember this story isn't just some random teaching or from the life and ministry of Jesus, it falls on Holy Week. And Holy Week starts, if you read back up in Matthew there, Matthew 21, it starts with Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? Do you understand why the crowds were worked up into a fever pitch? They knew the story, they knew the symbols, they knew the promises, and they were correctly interpreting what Jesus was doing. Jesus, the true David, the true anointed king of Israel, rides in for his coronation ceremony. He's entering Jerusalem just like David to restore what Amos calls the fallen tabernacle of Jerusalem, David's tabernacle. Only this time there's a little bit of a twist, right? They're singing the same songs. These are political songs. Hosanna, which means save us. That's a political song. Save us. We need a king. This is a song for a political coronation. But Jesus is going to establish his kingship in a very different way than David. He's traded 
the garments of a priest for the rags of a poor peasant. He's traded dancing in front of a parade full of war horses for a long, slow ride on the back of a lowly colt that probably looks something like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. His victory parade, to be honest, is sort of pathetic. It really looks more like a funeral dirge. Just as David walked into the empty tabernacle at the center of Jerusalem carrying the ark to reprioritize the presence of God at the center of God's people, Jesus walks into a temple emptied of the presence of God at the center of Jerusalem, and he walks in with his own body, the presence of God in the flesh, to reprioritize the presence of God at the center of God's people. And before we look at what Jesus does in this moment, so all that sort of context, and it's important context because it, it frames up what Jesus is doing. This is not a random act, right? This is a prophetic act that Jesus is doing here in the temple. And before we jump into what he does in this sort of holy outburst, I want us to stop and, and back up for a second and remember why Jesus does what he does. And I want us to remember Jesus' heart posture and what he does what Jesus is feeling on the days leading up to this, what motivates him. Two days earlier, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, Luke 19 records this, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. Jesus longed for peace, and he sees a city full of idolatry and injustice, and it breaks his heart. And, and you need to remember, that comes before anything else he does in the temple. Everything Jesus is about to do in driving out money changers and flipping over tables and all the iconic sort of uh, ways that we've envisioned this, we often forget that all of this comes from a place of deep prayer and lament and compassionate love. That's a true prophet. It comes from compassion. It's not reactive. It's not violent. Remember, Isaiah says, he will not quench a wick. He will not break a reed. Jesus commits no acts of violence here in the temple. It's not there. You won't see it. He's not vengeful. He's brokenhearted. The desert, uh, a, a, there was a group of people in the early church that when Rome was sort of going up in flames and beginning to fall apart, they were so overwhelmed by the idolatry and injustice of their time, that they moved out into the desert and they established these little communities where they worshiped and prayed and were being formed so that they could go back into Rome with the presence of God. And they used to talk about when we engage in this kind of work, they talked about praying for what they would call the gift of tears, sacred tears. Because when you have those sacred tears, when you experience the gift of tears, St. John of the Ladder, who's a sixth century Christian monk, he calls prayer the mother and the daughter of tears. And when you cry, when you weep over something, you see things differently than through the, through the eyes of rage and anger. And so it's with these prayerful tears, literally tears streaming down Jesus' cheeks, that he enters into the temple and does what he does and says what he says. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. That, that word threw out is the word cast out. It's exorcism language. Jesus cast out the presence of evil in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers 
and the chairs of those selling doves. Unless you think he had, this is not Jesus Rambo style or Wesley Snipes or back in my day. Wesley Snipes like running, like this is making the temple run red with the blood of his enemies. He literally has tied together what would be the, be the equivalent of cotton balls with some reeds. And he's like, it's all symbolic prophetic to act. He doesn't hit anybody. He turns over some tables and he's angry. And he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. And why is Jesus so upset? What, what's happening in the temple that's got him so outraged and angry? New Testament scholar Janine Brown says one of the reasons Jesus is upset is because of what was happening with the coins and the money exchange in the temple. She says, according to Matthew, the sale of sacrificial animals and the transactions of changing money were happening in the area of the temple courts. The former would have been necessary for pilgrims traveling significant distances to Jerusalem for the various Jewish feasts, including Passover. Greek and Roman currencies had to be exchanged for the prescribed temple currency. Coins from Tyre and Phoenicia, whose weight and value were considered close to the prescribed half shekel, required from Jews for temple support. So poor people had a provision in the Old Testament where they could exchange doves, right? Because they couldn't afford animals, they would exchange doves for the temple coins. Doves normally sold outside the temple for the modern equivalent of six cents were being sold inside the temple for the modern equivalent of 75 cents. They were extorting the poor at 12 times the market rate and there's absolutely no competition. There's no antitrust lawsuits in the temple. Another thing that's probably upsetting Jesus is where this is taking place. It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles were not allowed into the inner sanctuary of the Jews. They had to settle for the cheap seats. They were given space to worship, but at a comfortable distance from the inner sanctuary of ethnic Jews. Jesus says, you're making a mockery of God's house. In this outburst, about a house of prayer for all nations is not just something that Jesus invented. This is a direct quotation of two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? In Isaiah 56, the prophet Isaiah, this is what the Lord says, preserve justice, do what is right for my salvation is coming soon. So he talks here about a house of prayer in a house of prayer for the nations. I will gather all of these foreigners. I will gather eunuchs. I will gather vocationally single people who are outsiders in the community of God. I will bring all of these outsiders in and I will let them rejoice in a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus is condemning the temple leadership because they turned something that was supposed to be a place for those who had been blessed by God to be a blessing a place that was supposed to be a place of hospitality for the nations to be reconciled to God and to one another, they've turned that into an inwardly focused, self-serving dinner party. My house will be called a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. Jeremiah 7, you, he says you've turned it into a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, that language of den of robbers comes from Jeremiah 7, where he talks about correcting your ways and your actions and pursuing justice and not oppressing the alien, the fatherless, the widow, not shedding innocent blood. He's talking about injustice. He says, this has become a hideout for thieves and liars and robbers. 
who on the surface pretend to be godly, but underneath are full of greed and corruption. This is the same pattern that we saw in the Old Testament with Adam and Eve and with Saul and with the kings and the judges and the officials and the religious leaders, right? It's this pattern. Things are going well in the temple on the one hand, right? The temple is thriving. I mean, if you're a pastor, this is what you want, right? Profitability, sustainability, growth and hype. It's all happening in the temple, right? Like in a time of Roman persecution and occupation, the temple is thriving. They're gathering for prayer and Sabbath and fasting and spiritual disciplines and great teaching and their podcast are number one on the Spotify playlist or whatever. Like the right kind of people are being brought in and the wrong kind of people are being kept out. But again, remember Jesus sees things through his own eyes, through God's heart. He saw something different and I think they knew it. Jesus saw a temple that had been degraded, right? A temple that had gone from a place of worship and intimacy with God, a place for the nations, a house of prayer for all nations, to a place of commercial activity and comfort that had disrupted intimacy with God and perpetuated systems of injustice. That's why he calls it a safe house of thieves. And Jesus sees both this disruption of intimacy with God and injustice towards God's people And his heart is broken. And like any parent who sees their children going astray or being taken advantage of, he intervenes with loving and corrective action. And not only does Jesus cleanse the temple and remove the barriers that that were preventing people from accessing the presence of God, because again, that's what he's doing. Like David, he's trying to reprioritize the presence of God in the center of the church's life, people of God's life. So not only does he remove those barriers, but he prophetically embodies a new temple in a new way in his own person. He becomes what the the temple should have been, a place of healing and a place of life for all people. Jesus, in other words, prayed this prayer for peace as he enters into Jerusalem. And Jesus isn't content to just pray those prayers. He becomes the answer to his own prayer. Do you see it? Look at the next line. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And we've said this many times. The word for healing, soto, is whole person healing, body, mind, soul, the whole thing. Jesus turns the temple system on its head. He invites in those people that other people didn't want in. He invites in the blind and the lame who would have been banned from the temple for generations because they were considered ceremonially unclean. And Jesus heals them, which meant now there was no justifiable rationale for them being excluded from the broader community of God's people. I mean, can you imagine? Like we all have that sort of inner ring, that place that we wish we could get into with those kind of people where we feel excluded and left out. Can you imagine after decades of feeling left out of that place, all of a sudden now the doors are swinging wide open and you've been invited in by God himself. You belong here. Crazy. And what Jesus is extending here is the hospitality of God, not just the temple. This is not about the temple. This is, again, about what does the temple represent? God's presence. He is extending God's very presence, saying, hey, strangers, exiles, marginalized people, you are welcome in this space. He's removing barriers of exclusion 
and oppression that had been going on for generations in order to restore the possibility of a flourishing life of intimacy and dignity and wholeness in the presence of God. He's going after these people and welcoming them in a radical way. You know, a couple days before this incident, when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, as we all do, he booked his Airbnb because uh, he needed a place to stay. And in Mark chapter 14, you know where Jesus decided to stay the week of Holy Week? Not with the religious leaders, not even with his best friends. You know where he was staying? Mark 14, three. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. Jesus Airbnbs it at the leper colony. Which is crazy because that would have made him ceremonially unclean on Holy Week as a rabbi. Jesus, a rabbi, the ultimate insider, goes to the worst of the cultural outsiders to bring them in and make them insiders. And here's the thing about Jesus. When Jesus touches things that are unclean, he doesn't become unclean, he makes them clean. That's the difference between him and the priests and the rabbis. He makes them clean with the welcome of God because he is God. So what a story. Now, what does all that mean for us? What are the implications for us as we think about our mission as a church and living this out in our culture moment? There's just a couple of things I wanna put before us this morning. One, I think that as we hear the story, we get a really clear definition of God's mission. And it's important that we understand what God's mission is because there's so many definitions out there. So I think we get this really clear, beautiful definition of what mission is for us. What does it mean for us to live as a missional people in this cultural moment? Very simply, when you hear that story of the temple and we see this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, God's mission is this, to restore his life and his presence in the world in all dimensions. That is the mission of God. Another way to say this is practicing the way of Jesus for the life of the world. God came into the world in the presence and the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the world. This is the central priority of God's heart, right? Not for the church to just be another religious place that dispenses goods and services, not to be a place of entertainment, not to be a place of commercial activity, not just to be a nonprofit, God's heart is for people to experience fullness of life in the presence of God, unhindered. I love the way that theologian Al Walter says this, what was formed in creation, shalom and life and flourishing, has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed in Christ. That's what God's doing in the world. And in Jesus's cleansing of the temple, I think we see three interrelated aspects of God's life-seeking mission, right? And we have to hold these together. We see justice, we see mercy, and we see reconciliation. If I were just to distill down three threads of God's mission, justice, mercy, and reconciliation. We've talked about this a lot as a church. Justice, right? Jesus brings justice by correcting the corruption of temple structures and systems that were oppressing the poor and keeping people from pursuing intimacy with God. That's what justice is. 
right? This is not a word made up by our culture. Justice is a Bible word. Look it up. Sadiq in the Hebrew, mitzpah, these are all biblical ideas. Justice, again, is about putting broken things to right and restoring wholeness in relationships, in communities, and institutions. Justice is not just something that Jesus does, it's who he is, right? Justice is the foundation, the psalmist says, of God's throne, righteousness and justice. And like his father, Jesus is justice, and he loves justice, why? Not because he's woke, because he loves people, He loves his image bearers. And like his father, he hears the cries of the oppressed and he draws near to save and correct injustice when he sees it. And not only does he enact justice, but he does it with mercy, right? Meaning he does it from a heart of compassion that's been tenderized by the love of God. He does it with kindness. He does it in a way that humanizes other people, dignifies other people, honors the intrinsic image of God stamped on them at creation. Justice and mercy work hand in hand in a biblical understanding of mission. You cannot correct systems of injustice and not care about the people, and you can't care about the people and not work on the systems. And that's exactly what Jesus was critiquing the Pharisees about in Matthew 23. He said, you've separated these things out that should be held together. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay attention to these small things like cumin and mint and dill, and you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These should have been done without neglecting the other, which of course is just a quotation of Micah 6.8. What does God expect of his people? Let's say it together. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. We have to work on both justice and mercy or we're not living the full gospel of the kingdom. And then reconciliation, right? The whole point of justice and mercy is not justice and mercy. The whole point is this is who Jesus is. We want people to experience life with Jesus. So we do justice and love mercy so that people can experience life with Jesus. We wanna see people reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was ultimately about removing barriers to intimacy. This was not just Jesus being like a maintenance guy in the temple, okay? This is about removing anything that would be a barrier of intimacy between God and his people and between groups of people and other groups of people who historically have good reasons why they don't mix people who had been marginalized on the basis of of their ethnicity, their class, their physical condition. And so what we learn here, the mission of God, Jesus heals bodies, he heals souls, he heals relationships, and he reforms corrupt systems and structures, starting with the church and moving outward. And we need all three of those if we're gonna live out a holistic mission, right? Justice, mercy, and reconciliation. If we only have justice and mercy, but we leave out reconciliation, that's just secular humanism. If we have justice and reconciliation, we leave out mercy, that's called angry activism. And if we have mercy and reconciliation, 
but we subtract justice, that's deficient pietism. We need all three. That's God's mission, to restore life in all dimensions. That's what Jesus embodied in the temple. But we can't stop there, right? Because Jesus didn't just come to reform the temple. It wasn't just about a building. Jesus was after something much greater. He wanted to reestablish God's presence, not just as the center of God's people, but as the very people of God, right? Jesus wanted to form a people who would live as his body, as a house of prayer for all nations. And that's why he prophesied in John chapter two, tear this temple down and what? I'll rebuild it in three days with my own body. And that's why before he died, he breathed on his disciples. He breathed the Holy Spirit onto them, God's empowering presence. And he said, now you go and do greater works than me. And he began to refer to his people and Paul picks up this language as the body of Christ. And not only the body of Christ, the temple of God himself. If you read 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know, don't you know that your body individually houses, you are the tabernacle for the presence of God and you church, you are the temple of the living God. You are to be an embodied picture, the presence of God, the house of prayer for all nations. Wow, that's spectacular and sort of terrifying. As disciples, we are now the tabernacle of God's presence. If we are disciples, and that's what Jesus calls us, then we are to be with him, to become like him, to then learn to do what Jesus did in the world, to be tabernacles, to learn to tabernacle, to make our lives tabernacles for the presence of God. So what does it look like? That's an invitation to participation. It's not just like, wow, Jesus is gonna do it all one day, praise God. So I'm gonna sit back in my recliner, get my, my bag of popcorn and just watch the world go to hell in a handbasket because one day he's gonna make everything right. No, this is an invitation to participation. You will do greater works than these. So what does that look like? Let me just say this. There's a paradox in this for us of what it looks like to be these kind of people because mission is more than just activity. It's more than just serving or sharing or whatever. It's about the kind of people that we're becoming. And the message that we carry is not something we just speak with our mouths, but something we embody with our lives. So there's a sort of becoming of these kind of people that Jesus is after, right? This is the story of scripture, right? Matthew 22. Love, the love of God, becomes incarnated in a person. God doesn't just stand up there from heaven and say, hey, everybody be saved. He sends Jesus. The love of God takes on flesh, moves into the neighborhood and gets lived out sacrificially in love towards the neighbor. And that's what bothers me so much about like justice conversations right now. I mean, I, I'm for justice and you know that our church cares about this. So much of the conversation though about this is so abstract. It's ideological, it's academic, it's impersonal. But with Jesus, did you notice like justice is always personal, it's always relational, and it's always incarnational, right? You gotta become these kind of people. A house of prayer 
is a place where saying prayers leads to becoming the answer to our prayers, just like it was with Jesus. And so the paradox is we've got to bring together, I think, what we see and learn from the story, we got to bring back together two things that have been separated from one another in the evangelical movement in the last 100 or 200 years. We've got to bring spiritual formation back into mission and mission back into spiritual formation. And here's what I mean. Jesus is consuming zeal for a house of prayer. It's not just about the religious activity of prayer. It's about a deep love for the Father's presence, right? And this broader work of spiritual formation where we are learning to saturate ourselves in the Trinitarian love of God, learning to give and receive God's love as a way of life, as a habit. And so we are so formed into people that look like God that we begin to instinctually live out the agape love of God with our neighbors. That's what Jesus is after, learning to convert the ordinary everyday experiences of our churches, of our dinner tables, of our families, our workplaces, and our inner lives into tabernacles of God's presence. And then to learn to discern and see the presence of Jesus in our neighbor, like he says in Matthew 25, and give our lives away sacrificially so that they too can experience God's love. But we separate those things. And and here's what I want us to say about that real quick. Formation, like prayer is just sort of a stand-in for like our formation and our worship and our life with God. Formation without mission is incomplete and damaging. Spiritual formation must be about incarnating the love of God to other people. All of the spiritual practices, and I'm all for self-awareness. You probably get tired of me hearing that, me talking about that. I'm all for silence and solitude and prayer and fasting and scripture. But these cannot become baptized versions of mindfulness, therapeutic self-care, or secular wellness programs. They just can't. This is about formation that transforms us at the deepest level of who we are and then moves us out to self-giving action in relationship with other people. But if we're not formed, there's a deformation that we're exporting to other people. And one of the primary critiques of God's people throughout scripture is the tendency to get impressed with their own spiritual practice and to make it an exercise in selfishness. Read Isaiah 58 and James chapter two. Faith without works is what? Dead. So this looks like waking up in the morning for me and just taking a deep breath and trying to spend in the midst of four kids, wife, family that I love, trying to exercise a little bit. I know I don't look like it, but I try. And just praying the Lord's Prayer. It's the last part of my prayer rhythm in the morning. And when I get to that place where I pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I say, God, would you make me the answer to that prayer? That's not a prayer of passivity where we say, well, God, I hope you work that out today. God's going, no, I've actually placed you and I'm gonna put you in certain places today. You are to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, be the answer to that prayer. I love the way that Brennan Manning says this. It's so beautiful. He says, what if the hour you spend in the prayer room, which that's, that's a life goal, like an hour in a prayer room, right? If you're just busy and you got a lot going on. That hour, what if that was when you refocus on Jesus 
so that you can carry his presence with you into the other 23 hours of the day with a heightened awareness that he is with you, that he is for you, that he likes you, that he hears your thoughts. And then you start to play and pray in real time as you're grabbing coffee and you're on that Zoom call and whatever, you're caring for your children. And you instinctively lift situations to the Lord in the actual moment that you experience them while you are watching that distressing news report or hearing about your friend's latest crisis. You're no longer deferring all your prayers to some later holier moment because your whole life is becoming that holier moment. Wow, what a vision for formation and prayer that leads us to action in the world. But here's the other side of that coin. And I think this might be the more important word for our church in this moment. Mission without formation is also incomplete and damaging. I love the story of Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. He's doing all this prophetic work, justice work. He's calling out Jezebel, Ahaz. And, and, and they threaten him. And so out of fear, he runs into the desert, into a cave. And, and he just has this moment of honesty. And I love the honesty of scripture. He's exhausted He's tired, he's burned out, he's depressed, angry, self-righteous. God, I'm the only one. Nobody cares about justice in your kingdom except for me. Why don't you just kill me? I mean, is that not a picture of maybe the modern justice movement? And again, I'm all in on this. But often the modern justice movement lacks a commitment to spiritual formation and to prayer. It's driven by reactive energy, not by the presence of God oftentimes. And we point all that reactivity often at the church and we get mad at the church and we disconnect from the church and deconstruct the church rather than allowing the church to be the place where we grow up into the maturity of formation and mission together. And then I think we're just like sawing off the branch of life where this kind of work can happen because Jesus doesn't come to tear down the temple and just say, forget the church. He comes to cleanse the temple to rebuild the church and renew the church. And when mission gets disconnected from formation and the deep inner life with God, it leads to what we see in the Pharisees, like a transactional evangelism where it's just about winning and numbers. And Jesus says, you travel land and sea to put something on your scoreboard and you make them twice the sons of hell. Your evangelism is doing more harm than good. Why don't you just stop, Jesus says. And it also on the justice side leads to really angry justice warriors. And, and I think we need to be careful about that. As a pastor in this church, as people who love justice, Ronald Rollheiser says this, he says, one of the reasons why the world is not responding more to our challenges to justice is that our actions for justice themselves often mimic the very violence, injustice, hardness, and egoism they are trying to challenge. And that's not how Jesus did it. It's just not. Jesus' practice of justice emerged from a compassionate inner life that was formed by a hidden life of prayer with the Father. Because if you're gonna be engaged in mission, you've gotta go deep in prayer. You've gotta go deep into Sabbath. You've gotta go deep into silence and solitude because otherwise you won't make it, right? There was a great podcast recently with Gary Haugen, uh, the founder of IJM, International Justice uh, mission or ministries or whatever. And man, just a powerhouse guy. This ministry is doing amazing things for justice. But he said, I took a sabbatical a couple years ago and I realized that I was engaging and I was leading IGM towards what he called prayerless striving. And we had to come back and just say, something's wrong because we're all burned out and exhausted and this is not sustainable. 
And so they started with, in conjunction with their board, to say every morning at 8.30, call it the 8.30 initiative or something like this, the 8.30 stillness initiative. Every morning at 8.30, we are going to gather in the midst of all of our busyness, and there ain't nobody busier in justice work than IJM, and we're going to take 30 minutes to be quiet and pray and worship and read scripture and just allow God to minister to our souls, because otherwise we won't make it. What a powerful example of bringing mission and formation back together. That's what mission should do. It should lead us back to formation. It should lead us back to prayer because prayer is the place where we rest in God. It's the place where we learn to discern what is God actually calling me to do? Because here's the truth. Not all justice work is your justice work. Matter of fact, you know, you can do very, the older you get, you realize, I I can do a fraction And just like Jesus, there has to be times when I say, hey, I can't do any more healing here. So it's the place where we rest, it's the place of discernment, it's the place of compassion that's necessary to sustain sustain our justice work. Quietly in the hidden places with God, we become what Harry, Harry Nowen calls wounded healers. Those who are having our wounds attended to and as we experience life and joy and salvation with God, we move out into the world as a healing presence. That is, what the church, that is what our world needs the church to be. And so we've got to bring mission and formation back together. That's the paradox of becoming gospel people and not just doing gospel work or sharing a gospel message. So what does that look like? I'm going to close here. What does that look like at SOMA? I just want to throw up some ways that you can join us in participating in this work of mission, justice and reconciliation and mercy, what does that look like for us to join God and partner with God in bringing life to the world? Here's some different areas as we've looked across our city and we've looked inside at the ways that God has gifted us. There's a couple different areas that we want to engage with God. Global witness, evangelism and church planting and community development. We do that through Nicaragua Resource Network overseas and then Harbor Network here nationally through church planting and things. Education, we're involved in mentoring and coaching and leadership development and entrepreneurship through PPHS here in our neighborhood. If you're interested in that, we'd love for you. We have all kinds of teachers and coaches there that would love to help you plug in. We serve vulnerable individuals and families, refugees, foster care adoption through Bethany Christian, and we're exploring a partnership with Exodus International there. And then homelessness. Every Saturday for hours, people are moving homeless neighbors off the street and into permanent housing, showing them the love of God and trying to be Jesus, the hands and feet. As St. Teresa said, God has no hands and feet. He has no body other than you. And so we are just trying to be that body for him. And that is through a ministry we call Poor House. As I think about the next season, um, the invitation I feel like for us in mission, and we have done I mean, we have been a missional church from the beginning. This has been our heartbeat, but we have done it with lots of immaturity and we have had a lot, a lot to learn. And as I think about the next season, the phrase that God has put into our hearts and our imagination as a, as a leadership community is this phrase, deeper in and further out. Deeper into life with Jesus by building a culture of prayer that sustains the work that we do in the city. And we're gonna be talking more about that here in the next year, partnership, a 24-7 prayer. We're gonna be hosting a prayer and Holy Spirit you know, workshop or conference here in like January, February. And so we wanna to learn to become a people of deeper prayer and go deeper into a life with God and deeper into our formation so that we can go further out to the margins with Jesus, right? So that we can go and we can share the gospel. We've gotta do better at evangelism. We have not had a great structure for evangelism at this church and sharing the gospel And so we're going to be partnering with Alpha here in the coming years to do hospitality-driven evangelism and train and work together on that. 
Um, we're going to be forming a justice and reconciliation team so that we can really think through our approach and our strategy for justice and reconciliation so that it doesn't just stay in the ideas space, but we continue to, to implement and invite more of you into that and have better training uh, with respect to justice and reconciliation. And then we really want to, I think this is so important, we really want to move deeper in, uh, further out into kinship with the poor and marginalized. I, I think in the first season of our lives, we've done a really good job at being service providers, but that's not the vision of Jesus with the poor. It's what does it look like to move from serving to being family with the poor, brothers and sisters, kin. That's what we want to we start with service, but we want to end in kinship and we want to continue to grow in what that looks like for us to be that kind of community. So you're, you're invited, right? This is, this is who we are. We're, we're, we're a people trying to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. You may hate everything that I just said. I hope not, but okay, like we just wanna be really clear with who we are and what you're getting yourself into. If you come into this house and you participate, you are welcome regardless if you are a follower of Jesus or not. We want to invite you here. You are welcome in this house. But if you're gonna come into this house, just know that we take very seriously practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And we hope that you will see yourself in that invitation to come and to participate in God's mission of bringing life and flourishing and justice. And so I just wanna pray for us. And so let's just enter into this space of communion together. And let's be reminded that this is all about Jesus, right? Everything I just said is all about Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus. It's all about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what he did. If we're in relationship with Jesus and we're becoming like him, these are the things that he cares about. This is the things that frame, these are the things that frame up his house. And Jesus came and he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should die. He leaves the temple. He curses the fig tree. No house of prayer that is not also a house of justice will stand in God's kingdom. He curses that fig tree, but he doesn't leave them to themselves. He himself goes onto the cursed tree and he takes their place. And he dies in their place for their sins, reconciling them to God and, have, and, and providing forgiveness and an opportunity for a new life. And that's what we all need and that's what we celebrate each week here in communion. The life with Jesus that leads us out to the life for the world. And so let me just pray for us. You take a moment to sort of recalibrate and put your stuff away. Maybe think about where you're at and what God's invitation might be to you in this season. I'm gonna pray over us and then I'll invite us into communion. We'll have a prayer and then you come as the spirit leads. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your heart to make all things new again. Thank you that this, this is our future. You are coming for us. You are making all things new. And so would you help us to surrender to this good work first in our own hearts and our own souls and our own bodies. May we never try to offer somebody that we are not experiencing in our own lives. May we learn to tabernacle with you and be houses of prayer in our own souls the nations. And then would you continue this good work of forming us as a community into these kinds of people. We love you and we thank you for this invitation to participate with you on your mission in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.